We are going to be completing the, the practical instruction section of this letter and all that we'll have uh, this morning and all that we'll have left, left after this morning is kind of some uh, concluding remarks, uh, not that they aren't going to be uh, helpful and uh, applicable, but I uh, just wanted to tip you off that uh, you need to listen closely because uh, we've been learning about what does it look like to be a, a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, and Paul's going to give his final charge to us today. We're going to be looking at chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, and this is really the third part of a series we've been doing called Christian Liberty and Unity, and what Paul has uh, just finished saying in chapter 14, which is a passage that uh, is familiar to to many of us, and um, in fact, somebody mentioned that they were uh, looking forward to and not looking forward to me preaching through Romans 14 because it was their favorite chapter in Romans and they didn't want me to mess it up for them. No pressure, right? But uh, we all know and love Romans 14. It's so helpful, so practical. Uh, but typically, at least I'll admit this, I never made a connection between chapter 14 and 15. But Paul makes a connection here very clearly, and so what we have in these first 13 verses is just a continuation of his thoughts in Romans 14. And so let's continue reading here, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again he says, rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and all the people's praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, there is a lot here a lot of ground to cover this morning, but would you grant us grace? We are so thankful that the same spirit, your spirit, that inspired Paul to write these words is the same spirit that dwells within us and illuminates our mind to understand your word and make application of it to our lives. And so I pray that we would be good listeners this morning and good appliers and doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, sadly, as you know, churches have a reputation for dividing over the smallest, silliest things. I read a story about two struggling churches located on a, just a few blocks away from each other in the same town, and they thought it would be better if they merged to become one larger, stronger church, which could be more effective in reaching their community. It was a good idea, of course, but the only problem was they couldn't agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer. One church preferred forgive us our trespasses while the other church demanded forgive us our debts. True story. The local newspaper reported one church went back to its trespasses while the others returned to its debts. An interesting thing happened in our church just a few years ago. Um, some of you may remember the series that 
I taught through on the book of Daniel, and I was preaching a message about how Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kept themselves set apart from the pagan practices while they were in exile in Babylon by abstaining from the royal food and wine that had been provided for them. And I use an example from my own college years when I was asked to be the best man at a friend's wedding, which was held at this high-dollar mansion in Saratoga Springs, New York. If you know anything about Saratoga Springs, it's kind of the capital of the horse racing uh, in, in the Northeast. And um, anyway, the alcohol was flowing freely that night, but I chose not to drink uh, as everyone else was. But um, in fact, when, I was, uh, when it was time for me to toast the bride and groom, I, I grabbed my water glass uh, very purposely instead of my champagne glass. And when one of the groomsmen uh, noticed, he pointed out, he said, hey, you got the wrong glass. I said, no, I got the right glass. And when I was leaving that night, another groomsman met me at the door and said, you know, there's just something different about you. What is it? And uh, that gave me the opportunity to tell him about Jesus, that Jesus is who made me different and uh, what it meant to be a Christian. Well, after I told that story, the next week, uh, just really a few days later, I was leading our grow group through a time of sermon application, which we like to do, and one of the uh, other men in the group shared a story about how he was uh, at a trade show in Las Vegas, and uh, one night he decided just to go down to the bar to kill some time. He had a beer, and one of his coworkers who knew that he was a Christian saw him and expressed astonishment that someone who claimed to be a Christian was drinking a beer. Which gave this guy the opportunity to explain what it really meant to be a Christian. And he launched into a gospel presentation um, to this guy that was uh, very confused about what it meant to be a Christian. Well, um, as you might imagine, the contrast between my decision not to drink story and his decision to drink story, uh, and, and which was the better witness for Christ, led to a lively discussion in our grow group that lasted several weeks, in fact, um, and God used it to flush out the weaker and the stronger brothers in our group. I share that because this uh, is, a, is a practical example of a debatable issue in which two brothers in Christ held a different conviction based on their own personal experience, their, their own personal conscience, and who were both sincerely seeking to please and honor the Lord and striving to be salt and light in their situation, and both were effective in their own way. And it's situations like these that allow us as believers to model how unity and Christian liberty can coexist in the body of Christ. How we interact with each other as believers regarding these non-essential matters of conscience is critical to our witness to unbelievers even more so than whether we choose, in this case, to drink or not to drink. The testimony of a church is influenced more than anything else by the harmony of a church. The, the oneness of the church is vital to the witness of the church to a watching world that desperately needs Jesus. In fact, you'll remember that Jesus on the night before he was crucified in the upper room with his disciples prayed what we know as the high priestly prayer and one of the major themes of that prayer was for unity. Unity. John 17, verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. He went on to pray this in verse 20, I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. In other words, now he's praying for us. He wasn't just praying for his disciples who were in that upper room. He was praying for us, those who would come to know him through their witness that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. 
So Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. Paul emphasized the importance of unity in pretty much every one of the letters he wrote to the churches. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. By the way, you could add all sorts of things in that verse. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. There's neither black or white or brown. There's neither homeschool or public school. There's, I mean, fill in the blank, right? We're all one in Christ. And how are we to maintain this unity? Ephesians chapter four, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You think oneness is important? Paul thought so. In particular, when it came to reaching the world with the gospel. Philippians chapter one, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain silent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The reason why Paul said that to the church in Philippi because there was a couple ladies, uh, Yodi and Syntyche, who had gotten sideways with one another and he called them out. In Philippians chapter four, verse two, he says, I urge Yodi and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Quit your fighting, quit your bickering. You know, uh, get, get, get right with one another. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. He's appealing to probably an elder in the church to come alongside these women who he says have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, these ladies got their focus off the goal. The goal is the gospel and working together as a church to reach the world with the gospel and they had gotten focused on themselves and, and, and got, got uh, you know, uh, looking inward. And Paul had to redirect them and get them back to work, if you will. Well, what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi about Yodi and Syntyche is essentially what he wrote to the house churches in Rome, which were made up of Jews who had been saved out of Judaism and Gentiles who'd been saved out of paganism and as I mentioned before, the Gentile, or excuse me, the Jewish believers felt the need to, uh, to continue to abide by the dietary restrictions and, and the calendar of holy days prescribed by the law. The Gentiles, on the other hand, uh, who had come to Christ, felt no need to adopt any of these Jewish traditions and practices. So you can imagine the tension, the conflict between these two groups that threatened the unity of the churches in Rome. And Paul was about to come there and he was hoping that they would uh, rally with him to launch him into Spain where he could share the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth at the time. And he knew if they were bickering among themselves and fighting among themselves, uh, they weren't gonna be very helpful uh, when it comes to, to, to launching him out uh, onto his next mission field. And so here in chapters 14 and 15, Paul explained how Jews and Gentiles with different convictions and preferences and convictions uh, uh, about secondary matters of Christian freedom should accept one another and or defer to one another. And the implication for us today is how we can get along despite our differing perspectives and preferences and convictions and what you do in Vegas and what I do in Saratoga Springs and, you know, you know it, it's really that's between you and the Lord, right? Us and the Lord. When it comes to matters, the Bible neither commands or condemns. And so we've been, we've been learning here in, in, in Romans 14 how we can avoid imposing our personal preferences and convictions on others and using them as the standard to self-righteously judge other people's spirituality. 
We've also been learning how we can avoid flaunting our freedom and offending others or causing others to stumble or treating them with contempt because of their scruples and inhibitions, which we might not share. And we might even think are silly. The question, again, for us is how can we keep from being a critical, condescending, clicky church where people are suspicious of one another or dismissive of one another simply because our opinions or preferences or convictions are different from ours. So Paul has been providing us some lessons here that we all need to learn to, to, to achieve and maintain unity with fellow believers. In, in chapter 14, verses one through 12, we saw the first lesson was instead of judging others, we need to accept them. And, and Paul gave three reasons to not judge other people And that is, number one, God accepts us. Number two, Christ is our master. We're not one another's master. And thirdly, God will be our judge. Ultimately, we're gonna all stand before God and give an account to him. And what other people think of us at the end doesn't matter. It's what God thinks of us. In verses 13 through 23, Paul gave the second lesson. Instead of harming others, we're to love them. And if you remember, this section uh, was directed specifically to the stronger, more mature believers who have a greater obligation to be sensitive to and considerate of their weaker brother and be willing to limit their freedom to avoid offending them or causing them to stumble into sin. And so Paul laid out five ways that were to avoid harming or hindering others. Uh, The first one is don't cause others to stumble. Number two is don't force your personal convictions on others. Number three, don't destroy or tear down others. Uh, uh, Number four is don't lose sight of the mission. And then lastly, don't violate your own conscience or someone else's conscience. Well, now we come here to Romans 15, and we have the final lesson of achieving and maintaining unity, and that is instead of pleasing yourself, imitate Christ. Instead of pleasing yourself, imitate Christ. Now, I've already read verses 1 through 13 with you, and I hope you have already can see that uh, these first 13 verses of chapter 15 obviously continue the subject of the previous chapter. And Paul explained the third principle here for, for achieving and maintaining, maintaining unity with our fellow believers, which is this, follow the example of Jesus Christ who sought to please his father and others rather than himself. And so this section really breaks up into two sections. There are these verses break up into two sections, verses one through six and verses seven through 13. And they're really just two ways that we need to follow Christ's example. First of all, we need to follow the example of Christ in that he gladly accepted any self-denial. He gladly accepted any self-denial. Secondly, Christ graciously accepted both Jews and Gentiles. And so these are the two ways that we are to follow the example of Christ. And I want you to notice too, as we go through this, that in both of these sections, Paul started with an exhortation. He followed it up with the motivation. He gave us the motivation for why we were to obey that exhortation. And then he concluded by offering a benediction, a prayer that God would make these things that he was exhorting possible. And so let's look at the first way we're to follow Christ's example, and that is Christ gladly accepted any self-denial. And we see, first of all, the exhortation in verses one and two. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Let me just stop there. Because like I said last time, Paul didn't, specifically define who the weak and the strong are. We've kind of had to uh, come up with our own definition based on um, what he said here in the context. Uh, he, He obviously concluded himself in the strong category and based on what he said about himself and the weak in chapter 14, I think we can safely conclude who the weaker and stronger brother are. Again, look at verse 14, chapter 14, verse one. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. 
Verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Verse 14, Paul speaking about himself, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks it is anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And then verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And then he says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. And so, we, so the person that's weak in faith is someone who does not fully understand their freedom in Christ or they maybe have a sensitive conscience and they feel some type of compulsion or obligation to do certain things or not do certain things that the Bible doesn't specifically say they should and shouldn't do. These were primarily, in this context, the Jewish believers who had some hang-ups about the diet, their diet and the days and, and the things that were, uh, they, the days they should celebrate. Those who are strong in faith are those who understand or enjoy their freedom in Christ and whose conscience has no scruples or inhibitions about doing or not doing certain things that are not explicitly forbidden in God's word. These were the Gentile believers represented in this passage and uh, they, they didn't know why it was so important they couldn't eat this or they had to you know, not work on this day or things like that. It didn't, didn't make any sense to them. But what we learned last week or last time I should say, is that God expects the stronger brother to be patient and loving towards those who are weak and be willing to defer to them so as not to offend them or cause them to stumble. And once again, here in chapter 15, Paul puts the onus on the strong to take the initiative in preserving the unity within the body of Christ. Notice what he said here, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So he exhorted the strong here, rather than pleasing themselves by selfishly insisting on their rights to do certain things and, and freely expressing their Christian liberty in front of everybody, there to bear with the scruples and inhibitions of those who are weaker. And what Paul said here is, is similar to what he told the Galatians in Galatians 6.2 when he said, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, the law of Christ was the law of love. Love one another. And so the strong are to lovingly come alongside the weak and pick up and carry the weight that they're struggling with uh, to carry perhaps themselves. And, and um, they're not supposed to merely tolerate or put up with the weaknesses of others. They're, they're, they're obligated here. That, that word ought, you, those who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That, that, there's an obligation there to help the weak shoulder their burdens and, and to show concern for their spiritual welfare. Notice what he says in verse two. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. In other words, rather than, the, rather than living to please ourselves, we need to live to please others. Now, some of you are maybe reacting to that. Wait a minute, thought we weren't supposed to be living to please others. I thought the Bible said stuff about not being people pleasers. Well, you're right. Um, Paul made it clear that we are not to be uh, people pleasers. Galatians chapter one, uh, verse 10. For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In Colossians chapter three, verse 22, you remember when Paul was giving instruction to employees Slaves, in that context, he says, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In other words, work for the Lord, not your boss. In fact, your boss is the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, 
He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So obviously we shouldn't accommodate other people's sins or flatter them or patronize them so that they like us. That's not what Paul is getting at here. What Paul is saying here in Romans 15, verse 2, is that we should be willing to adjust our lifestyle, perhaps, and limit our freedom in whatever way necessary to contribute to the spiritual good of our weaker brother. He said something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. In other words, when it comes to things that the Bible isn't specific about, they're, they're okay to do. But that doesn't mean it's profitable. And then he said this, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So, Paul already mentioned this idea of building up uh, in chapter 14, verse 15, right? For he says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food, with your food him for whom Christ died. Verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. So rather than tearing people down or, or, or trampling on their consciences, we need to build them up. You say, how do we do that? Well, we can build them up by encouraging them for their genuine desire to honor and please the Lord. You remember in verse six of chapter 14, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not, for the Lord does not eat, and gives thanks to God. In other words, both the weaker brother and the stronger brother, according to Paul's definition here, they're both sincerely trying to honor and please the Lord. And so you can encourage them and say, hey, I appreciate that. I appreciate that conviction. I appreciate that preference, because I know it's, it's motivated out of desire to, to, to really honor and please the Lord, and you think that that's the best way that you can honor and please the Lord. Good for you. I think another way we can edify them and build up the weaker brother is by educating and strengthening their consciences with God's word so that they grow and mature in their understanding of a believer's freedom in Christ. And it's obvious here that Paul didn't expect the weaker brothers to stay weaker. He wanted them to grow. One of the most valuable commentaries that I have uh, on the book of Romans that I just always look forward to reading every week in preparation for these messages is a, a, a commentary written by S. Lewis Johnson, who uh, formerly pastored Believer's Chapel up in the Dallas area and uh, is really a legend, a legendary expositor. In fact, John MacArthur says that he's his favorite expositor. When John MacArthur says somebody's their favorite, his, his favorite expositor, I want to know who that is. And so S. Lewis Johnson is that guy, is that model, if you will, for John MacArthur. But this is what he said, and I thought this was so helpful and practical. Just contrasting the stronger, weaker dynamic in the life of any church. He says, strong believers should avoid confirming legalists in their weakness by continually yielding on the things that offend the legalists. It is the responsibility of the weak believers to grow to strength, and that can be hardly done if the strong always yield without explanation. He says, then the life of the body of believers becomes determined by the narrowest and the most prejudiced of its members. That would not be so bad were it not also an inevitable result that the unbelieving world is led to conclude that the gospel itself depends on obedience to the scruples and inhibitions of the weak. The gospel then is no longer the issue of Christ and his saving cross alone, but the cross plus obedience to the scruples. Salvation appears to unbelievers to be the product of faith and works, not of faith alone, dishonoring Christ's work and confusing the good news. Wow, isn't that insightful? And that was sort of what was going on in Las Vegas with my friend, having a beer to the glory of God, and some guy came along and had a messed up view of what it meant to be a Christian. I didn't think Christians could drink. Somehow that was associated with being a Christian as you couldn't drink. And he didn't understand the true gospel. It's, it's by grace through faith alone, not of works so that no one can boast, right? 
And so here Paul exhorted us to bear with and build up those who are younger in the faith or perhaps weaker in the faith. That was the exhortation. Now let's look at the motivation in verses three and four. And, and we see how Paul here held up the example of Christ to motivate us to obey this exhortation. And in Christ's selfless, self-sacrificing life is the model that we are to follow. Notice he says, for even Christ, verse three, did not please himself. Jesus lived to please his father, not himself. John 5, 30, Jesus said, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 8, 29, I always do what pleases him. He says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This was a quote from Psalm 69, verse nine, which is a messianic psalm that foreshadowed the life of Christ and what he would do and and, and what he would say. In fact, this is one of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament, second only to Psalm 22. And so Paul quoted it here to illustrate how Christ did not please himself, but his father, And how did he do that specifically? Well, he gladly endured all the slanderous insults and false accusations that were heaped upon him by God's enemies for claiming that he was God's son. And he willingly denied himself whatever was necessary to fulfill the mission the Father sent him to accomplish. Not my will, but yours be done. And he put the interest of others above his own interests. He put us before himself. Remember Philippians chapter two? Philippians chapter two, verse two. Paul said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There he goes again, talking about the importance of unity. How do we achieve that unity, Paul? Well, here it is. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in who? Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul called us to follow Christ's selfless, sacrificial Example. And when it comes to things like giving up eating or drinking something, I mean, that's really no sacrifice at all compared to what Christ gave up for us. He sacrificed his life. He died in our place. So don't make a big deal If you're making a big deal about, why can't I do that? I really wish I could do that, but I can't. I can't. Because these weaker brothers. you, You are missing the point. You are being so petty. You have forgotten the gospel. You have forgotten the cross. The next verse, verse four reads to me like a a parenthetical statement. It's like after quoting from the Old Testament, Paul couldn't help but mention the beneficial role that the Old Testament scriptures plays in the lives of New Testament Christians. Notice what he says here. For whatever was written in earlier times, which I just quoted, by the way, he said, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is one of the the clearest statements in the Bible about the Bible. It's it's right up there with 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, 
verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, but we know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I mean, these are the big dogs right here. These are the big guns when it comes to uh, the word testifying about itself. And, and here we have, I think, a verse, another verse right in that same category. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Notice there that while the Old Testament, and, and this is, Paul was talking about the Old Testament here, by the way. I mean, I think we, it applies to the whole, all of Scripture, right? For us as New Testament believers, it also applies to the New Testament. But specifically, he's referring to the Old Testament here. And he's saying this, that while the Old Testament was not written to us, it was written, what? For us. And it's just chock full of relevant lessons uh, for our lives today. Uh, in fact, he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, talking about the history of Israel, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. That's, who's that? That's us. So Paul says the same thing, that, that what was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So God's word provides us with the instruction or the information, if you will, and also the, the inspiration, that's the encouragement there, that we need to endure affliction and endure temptation by helping us look beyond our present suffering to the hope of our future glory in heaven. You remember back in chapter 8, Paul said in, in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to com be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we're going through is light and momentary, he, he said uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In other words, while they may seem huge and painful, Paul's saying, hey, you know, it's really, when you look at them in light of eternity, it's really nothing compared to what we're going to experience. And where does this hope come from? This hope comes from the promises in the scriptures. And the more familiar we are with the scriptures, the more we'll experience these benefits. This ability to persevere, this encouragement, this, this hope that Paul says is a fruit of the word of God. It's why the word of God exists. And so I would just say this, if you are always battling with discouragement or always giving into temptation or always giving up in trials or just always feeling hopeless, it's either because you don't know the word of God or you're not applying the word of God. And this is why we make such a big deal about spending time in God's word on a regular basis. Because the encouragement comes from the reading and hearing the word of God. But the enablement comes through praying to the God of the word. The encouragement comes from the reading and hearing of the word of God. The enablement comes through praying to the God of the word. And notice the benediction here in verses five and six. Paul says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Hey, wait a minute. Those are the same two things that, that Paul just got done saying that, that come through the word. That the word provides perseverance and encouragement. But notice he says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So, so Paul connected God with the Bible. That is God's word. 
And, 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 and all this ultimately comes from God. Why? Because he's the author of the scriptures who provides these things to us through the scriptures. So the scriptures are the means by which, right, excuse me, God provides these things for us. You might be sitting around going, hey, why doesn't God, why do I feel so discouraged? And it's just, man, why does, I don't have any hope right now. And why do I just keep giving in to this temptation? And, and you're kind of expecting God to zap you with this perseverance and this encouragement. And, 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 and it, well, listen, if you're looking for it, it's right here. This is his means by which he provides this stuff. And so that's why it's helpful to have some of this memorized, Right? And, and stored away in your mind and your heart so that when maybe you're driving down the road and those anxious, fearful thoughts come and you're like, oh, I can't pull over to the side of the road and read my Bible right now, right? But maybe something that you read that morning in your quiet time will come back to the forefront of your mind and you'll be able to regurgitate that a bit and meditate on that and that will give you encouragement, that will give you hope. It'll help you endure whatever temptation you're facing or trial you're up against. So Paul prayed here, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to, his, to Christ Jesus. Paul prayed that God would grant these things to both the weak and the strong and enable us to be like-minded. That's what he's saying here. That we would be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That, 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 so that we could what? Worship and serve together in harmony despite our differing opinions and preferences and convictions about the things the Bible is not specific about or the Bible is silent about. So that with one accord, he says, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has glorified when the weak, and in this context, Jewish believers and the strong Gentile believers lay aside their differences and come together and worship him side by side with one united voice. The good news here is, folks, that we don't have to see eye to eye on everything. We don't. We don't have to see eye to eye on everything. But the more we're concentrated on Christ and the more we're conformed to Christ, the more unified we'll be and the more God will be glorified through us. And by the way, let's not mistake this for what Paul is talking about here necessarily about with all one accord, we have one voice glorifying God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we just did that, right? Whenever we come together and we sing, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're all with one accord and with one voice glorifying God, the Father. But church is more than just a bunch of individual believers coming under the same roof at the same time to sing the same songs, there's more going on here and that is that we've come together and our ultimate purpose or goal should be to glorify God as individual Christians but also as a church, corporate church. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul made this clear, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Some have said that uh, typically that's interpreted as you know glorify God in your body with your individual body your life um, some say some some commentators say that that's he's, he's talking to the church in Corinth because he uses the word body earlier in the, the letter to describe the body so are they to glorify God in their bodies or are they to glorify God in their body yes both and Paul prayed for that in other places. Um, Ephesians chapter three, verse 21. Now to him who was able to do f far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power of that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse 12. 
He prays that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the first way we're to imitate Christ is to graciously or gladly accept any self-denial. In other words, be willing to give up whatever it might take to maintain the unity of the church. No big deal. We're not giving up our life. That's what Jesus gave up. This is nothing. Secondly, we're to follow Christ's example in that he graciously accepted both Jews and Gentiles. He graciously accepted both Jews and Gentiles. Notice again the exhortation first. He starts with the exhortation, verse seven. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now hopefully you remember that verse because that was the verse that we kind of use as a foundational verse for our hospitable God and his hospitable people series. Remember that? That we're to, to follow the example of, of God's hospitality towards us. That's the idea here of accepting one another. It means to receive someone graciously or, or welcome them. And, and by the way, you'll remember this, is the, this was the first command in this whole section on unity and Christian liberty back in chapter 14, verse one. Now accept the one who is weak in faith. So the fact that it's all the way over here in chapter 15, verse seven, he's still talking about accepting one another. We know this is all one flow of thought here. And again, what is he saying? We, we need to accept others graciously, receive them, welcome them, just like Christ received and welcomed us. And again, Paul presented Jesus as the model for us to follow when it comes to accepting one another. Jesus accepted us when we were ungodly rebels. Remember Romans chapter five, verse six, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if Christ showed grace to us in the awful sinful condition that we were in, as his enemies, then certainly we should be able to show the same grace to those who differ and disagree with us on incidental matters. Fellow believers, they're not our enemies. This is reminiscent of Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, when Paul said this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, who are you to withhold forgiveness from someone else, a brother or sister in Christ, when God did not withhold that forgiveness from you? God freely forgave you, quickly forgave you, fully forgave you. And you're holding a grudge against your husband or your wife or your brother, your sister? Shouldn't be. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice it says here back in Romans 15, he accepted us to the glory of God. Christ accepted us so that we could bring glory and honor to God. And when we accept other people, who are not like us, who have different convictions than we do, different preferences than us, different opinions than us, guess what? It brings honor and glory to God as well. And how can we do this? Well, again, it's remembering that we may not share the same opinion, we may not share the same preference, we may not share the same conviction, but we do share the same focus, the same goal, which is what? To glorify and honor God. 
And I think it goes without saying that disunity and disharmony doesn't glorify God. It dis- dishonors God. It displeases God. It makes God look bad in the eyes of the world when we're in here in the four walls of the church kind of bickering with one another about secondary, incidental, non-essential matters. About how to say the Lord's Prayer, what color the carpet's gonna be or where the piano's gonna sit on the stage or y- you fill in the blank. So the obvious implication here for our church is that there should be, there should be no favoritism. There should be no cliques. There should be no racial prejudice. Again, these are given, right? We, we know this. This is just reaffirming this, that we, we need to embrace one another equally and never despise one another or divide from one another. Oh, you have that conviction? Oh, that's your preference? Oh, that's your opinion? Nice to know. I'm gonna go over and find the people in the church that are like me. And we're gonna hang out together. And uh, you can go find people that are like you. And you can hang out with them. We do that. In our minds and our hearts at least. And we shouldn't divide over these kinds of secondary matters. He provides a motivation here And it's quite lengthy, but it's quite simple. And in this next section, verses 8 through 12, Paul simply provided a summary of everything he's already said in chapters 9, 10, and 11 about God's sovereign plan to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together into one body. That they're all part of God's plan of salvation. Notice he says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So Paul reminded his readers that the ministry of Jesus included both Jews and Gentiles here and Paul referred to the Jews as the circumcision since that was the God-ordained physical sign and seal of the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the main promise that God repeatedly made to these fathers or these patriarchs of Israel was that he would send a Messiah or a Savior to deliver Israel. And Jesus was that promised Messiah and he fulfilled and or will fulfill everything that God has said in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And so that's why when Christ was here on earth, he focused mainly on the Jews and confined his ministry to them. Matthew chapter 15 uh, verse 24, I think it's a, I love this uh, account where the Syrophoenician woman, which is a fancy name for a Gentile, uh, came to Jesus asking for some help. And this is what Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus essentially said, I like you. And because of your faith, your daughter's healed. Point was, Jesus had come to focus on the Jews, but he knew the Gentiles were gonna be picking up the scraps pricking up the crumbs. He told his disciples to limit their ministry to the Jews as well in Matthew chapter 10, verse five, when you go out, just go into, uh, go out to the Jews. Um, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So that was his focus, but at the same time, Christ knew that he was the channel of salvation to the Gentiles, which was also foretold in the Old Testament that uh, God told Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, i.e. through the the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus came to confirm the, the promises made to the Jews, which resulted in God's mercy being extended to the Gentiles. Notice he says, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Christ didn't just come to save the Jews, he came also to save the Gentiles which should come as no surprise to the Jewish believers 
in the Roman church because this was frequently foretold in the Old Testament. And so Paul here inserted four quotes from the Old Testament, two from the Psalms, Psalms, one from the law, and one from the prophets. In other words, one from every section of the Old Testament, the way the Jews viewed the Old Testament. And they all, all of these verses predict the inclusion of the Gentiles. And each of these references prophesy about the Gentiles sharing the privileges of the Messiah and joining with the Jews in praising God as part of his chosen people. Psalm 1849, therefore I will give praise to, the, to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Deuteronomy 32, 43 and he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Psalm 117, verse 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall be the Gentiles' hope. So, a lot of verses to make a simple point that in light of God's sovereign plan of salvation, which included both Jews and Gentiles, Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the house churches in Rome should accept one another, should get along with one another. If God graciously accepted both of them, then how could they not graciously accept each other? And furthermore, the, the Jews shouldn't despise the Gentiles since it was their job to reach the Gentiles in the first place. And on the other hand, the, the Gentiles shouldn't despise the Jews since the Jews were the channel through which they were saved. They wouldn't be saved if it wasn't for the Jews. And this is astounding when you think about the fact that no two groups in the history of the world were more diametrically opposed to one another than the Jews and the Gentiles. The only thing they had in common was the animosity that they had toward one another. And yet God devised a plan in eternity past to put his glory on display by bringing these two diverse people groups together and uniting them into one group called the church through, his, through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And he called Paul to explain that mystery, which he does brilliantly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we don't have time to read that, but you can write that down. Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 to 22, the clearest, most comprehensive explanation of the mystery of the church and how through Christ, God destroyed the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles and brought them together into this one new group where they were neither Jew or Gentile, they were Christians, followers of Jesus. Someone wrote it this way, said it this way, in light of God's plan from the beginning to bring Jews and Gentiles together to share in his blessings, disunity and contention among believers in a given assembly is simply unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. But notice finally the benediction. Paul didn't leave us to do all this in our own strength. Notice he says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that what he was asking the believers in Rome and what he was asking us to do was not easy. In fact, it's not something that we can do in our own strength. It's humanly impossible. This stuff right here is humanly impossible. If you go out of here trying to do this in your own strength, it ain't gonna happen. You're still gonna be getting sideways with one another. And so Paul asked God to make this unity a reality by the power of a spirit who dwells inside every one of us who are believers. It is the Holy Spirit who produces the joy and the peace and the hope. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kind of, right? We can't produce those things. The Spirit of God produces those things in us. What a fitting conclusion to the apostles' discussion about what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God.
We need to ask God to enable us to be and do all that he expects us to be and do. There's no question. There's a lot expected of us here. But God never expects anything of us that he doesn't also enable us to do through the power of Christ via the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Let's pray. God, the psalmist said how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. We long for that as a church. Help us to experience that by remembering that we all have the same mediator, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and and also by relying on the Holy Spirit whom Christ promised to send to help us live out all that he's commanded, all that he modeled for us. So we confess, we can't do any of this stuff that we've been learning about for months now, uh, apart from your Holy Spirit enabling us to do that. And so would we have the joy um, and the peace and the hope that's promised here Lord, as we spend time in your word and as we spend time in prayer, uh, that we would see uh, you um, providing these things for us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.